You may open your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. In the prayer that was just offered, reference was made to the stars and to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called the day star from on high. He is called the bright morning star. The Lord Jesus Christ is. He exceeds all the host of heaven in his glory and beauty. And may we love him as such. First Chronicles chapter 28. The Lord has led us to a consideration of the topic of deacons. We have no deacons at the present time, but by the grace of God, we shall have one or more shortly. And we want to learn all that we can with, about what the Bible has to say on the subject. We may think that we already know it, and we may have a good idea of many aspects of what constitutes a deacon, but we want to consider as many aspects as possible so that all the questions are answered together. I want to use 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 19 to open this study. I used it last Lord's Day because we learned from this verse that God, our Father in heaven, the God of glory, sent blueprints down to David by his hand upon him that he was able to give to Solomon so that the temple Solomon built was according to the pattern that God gave for it. And so I read verse 19. The 19th verse follows a number of verses in which David declares by weight what amount of metals he wants in the various furniture of Solomon's temple. There's a lot of detail here, and in some other chapters there's a whole lot more detail about how the temple was to look, how it was to be constructed, what materials were to be used, and how much of each of those materials. And then we come to verse 19. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. That temple... That God loved. That God delighted in. The temple that God came down and filled with His glory so that the priests and Levites could not minister was built according to the pattern that God gave David by His hand upon him and He gave it to him in writing. There were blueprints, brethren. There were blueprints and specifications for the building of that temple that God gave. It should be our pleasure and our excitement To open the Word of God upon a new subject, to see everything that God has to say about it, so that we can follow the heavenly pattern as closely as possible. It should be exciting. God gave the pattern of how the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved in in another place. He gave that to Moses. It was to be carried upon the shoulders of priests by means of staves, a staff on each side that went through rings on the Ark of the Covenant at its corners. When they didn't follow that due order, they were judged. A man died. A parade ended. 
But when they followed that due order, God blessed abundantly. Do you remember when in our study of last Sunday, the priests, Solomon was wiser than his father. Maybe he learned a lesson from his father and the stone in the cemetery named Uzzah. But Solomon had the priests bring the Ark of the Covenant into that new temple. They came walking across that courtyard, past that 900 square foot brazen altar that was on the backs of golden oxen. And they walked toward that temple, went through its front door, through its first compartment, and then into the Holy of Holies. And they put that Ark of the Covenant down underneath those beautiful cherubim that Solomon had made for it. And they backed out of that compartment. And the glory of the Lord filled the place. So they could not minister. Because God approved of them following the due order. David wanted to do something that noble for the Ark. And he eventually did bring it to Jerusalem and put it in a tent that he made for it. But we want to look at a verse like this and be excited that God's given us a pattern for how things should be done in the Old Testament church and in the New Testament church. And we want to follow that pattern. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and see that there is a New Testament pattern to be followed. And it was given to us in writing as well. Solomon built the temple according to... To the written blueprint, the written pattern that God gave David. We are going to learn all that we can about deacons. And we are going to follow the pattern that God, by his hand upon the Apostle Paul, gave us in writing. So we're going to be as faithful as Solomon by the grace of God or more so. Because we want to follow the pattern as closely as we can. Verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul told Timothy, I am writing these things to you. And we know that what Paul wrote to Timothy was inspired by God. So the pattern of a New Testament church, which last Sunday we learned and was reminded of, is the house of God. It's the temple of God. It's the palace of God of the New Testament. A local church. But Paul put in writing to Timothy so that he would know how he ought to behave himself. How he could teach congregations to look out men that could be deacons and to ordain them and put them in their office and assign them the tasks that God wants deacons to fulfill. It's in writing. And we're going to follow it as closely as Solomon followed David's pattern that was in writing as well. I hope that stirs you up. We want to follow the Word of God. We want to reject every thought that we've had or ever been taught about deacons that doesn't measure up to the Word of God. Now look at Philippians, not yet, not yet. Let me, let me uh, not go there yet. Let's remind ourselves of the importance of following Scripture. Moses built the first tabernacle because God gave him blueprints on Mount Sinai. 
He came down with those blueprints and Moses was overwhelmed because Moses wasn't a builder. And if you go, and I believe it's Exodus 33 or 31, if you go there to Exodus, you will read the words where God said to Moses, See, I have called Bezalel to do the building of this tabernacle. It may be too much for you, but it's not too much for Bezalel because I've gifted and enabled him to be able to do such craftsmanship and I've enabled other men with him to be able to build the tabernacle. We follow the word of God. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That is where we stand on the subject of deacons. It doesn't matter what the Southern Baptist Convention says about them. It doesn't matter what the Primitive Baptist practice has been. It doesn't matter if you had a grandpa that was a deacon. We don't care. That's not going to influence truth at all. What we want to do is find out what God said. To the law and to the prophets, if they speak not according to this word... It is because there is no light in them. Amen. Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They received the Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Second right. Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Second Peter 1.19 tells us, Wherefore also we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well, that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Therefore, there's one author, though there may be 40 secretaries, that took the dictation and wrote it down. We are going to trust the Word of God. We're going to go with Scripture. And it's, it's an exciting subject to be able to take up that we haven't really looked at before. And follow the word of God as closely as we can. It ought to rejoice our hearts. But that means we've got to flush all preconceived ideas of what a deacon is. So that we end up following the word of God and it only. Because God's revealed what he calls a deacon. And what a deacon should do. And how a deacon is put in his office in the Bible. And we want to follow the Lord as closely as we can. And I want all the young men of this church... To be committed with the older men. That you will not depart from the word of God. That you will never let deacons get out of line. But that you will keep them in the roles that God gave them. Lest they disturb the church of Jesus Christ. They have a very limited role or they can become very dangerous. Like they are in many churches. There have been many noble and good and honorable deacons. And the Lord Jesus Christ will... Take recognition of every single one of them. They have purchased themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith by being, by doing their jobs well. But there are also other deacons who given a little bit of authority and given an office, lets it, let it go to their heads and become something God never intended. I was warned very strictly by the men who ordained me to be a bishop 
that deacons were dangerous because they had seen dangerous deacons in their lives. And so we want to be careful and follow the word of God as closely as we can. They can be a great service. They can bless the ministry. They can help the church. And we will all prosper together if deacons do their job well. But we follow the scriptures to do that. There's no other source for our learning. There's no manual or, or practical theology that we can pull off the shelves to help us. We want to go straight to the word of God and trust the Lord, who in two or three passages, a couple of, maybe five, has told us about deacons. And we want to follow that. We'll try to aim to ask and answer as many questions as possible. I'll try to ask them for you like the Apostle Paul did when he would write difficult chapters. He would discern the coming questions and he would ask them and answer them. We'll try to do that. Rather than anyone here, any man here, thinking ambitiously or enviously about who might be appointed a deacon or deacons in this church, Let us rather be ambitious and envious for the best, whether it's you or someone else. So the church has the best deacons to take care of the things that God wants deacons to take care of. Let's go to Acts chapter 6 and read three of the passages of Scripture that talk about deacons. When we come to Acts chapter 6, the word deacon is not used. We're just reading about an office of men who are put over a business rather than preaching the word of God. These men are not, there's no requirement for a deacon to be able to teach. He could be mute and be a deacon. And so in Acts 6, we were going to read a description of men who were given a secular assignment of a carnal job that needed to be done in the church at Jerusalem. No teaching ability was required of them. And then when we go over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we run into another office. After the bishop, who has to be apt to teach, or he can't be a bishop, we then have the office of deacon, and there's no requirement for teaching there. And so we put the two together, Because Philippians chapter 1 tells us of the only two offices in a New Testament church, bishops and deacons. There's a teaching office that's responsible for spiritual matters in a church. And there's a secular or carnal office that's responsible for all the natural, carnal, material, financial aspects of a church. And so we put the two passages together by way of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, even though we don't have the word deacon here in Acts 6. We just have a non-teaching office that oversees, with some authority, the financial matters of a church. And when we go to 1 Timothy 3, we see a similar office, but there we have a name for it. And it's called an office, which means that men are appointed and put into a role and given assignments to take care of that does not require teaching. And so we connect Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3 as describing the same office. No name for it here, but a name for it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And Philippians chapter 1 tells us that there are bishops and deacons, just like Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. And so we come to our conclusion that Acts 6 is a further cross-reference for 1 Timothy 3. Ordinarily, a man addressing this subject 
would go to the Greek word behind the word deacon and try to make a connection that way. Because the Greek word for deacon occurs in Acts chapter 6 a number of times. But I'm not going to do that. I can show them to you, but it doesn't help us at all because we trust our King James Bibles. Acts chapter 6. And I'll read down through verse 8. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Acts 6, 1 through 8. Now the way I'm going to approach this is let's go through these verses rather quickly. And then you'll see how I want to go to 1 Timothy 3. And then we'll ask some questions and answer questions about what the Bible says about deacons. And we'll get more and more practical as we go, go along, which we may not get to today. We'll get more and more practical about how we are actually going. You are going to actually select men to be deacons. What it means for them to be ordained. What jobs are going to be given to them. And the details of how they perform that function in our church. Verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied. It is easy to see that the church of Jerusalem had at least 20,000 members. Could have had 50,000 very easily. It was a mega church. And I, but I don't use that in the disrespectful, profane way that it's used today. The church was enormous. Very large. It says, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there are offices and there are additions to offices that are to be brought into a church when the disciples multiply because one man or no men or few men can't get the job done. So that when the disciples multiply, you need more of them. Right. Look at Acts chapter 2. Let's ju- I, want you- I just want to show you how big the church at Jerusalem had become. It said, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, the ordination of deacons is a function of church size. A small church doesn't need a deacon. Members can do unofficial assignments given to them like we've got along with for many years. And it's run smoothly. However, 
it has come time that we have other men that take care of all those responsibilities so that your pastor doesn't ever think about them. I don't even want to think about them. I think about too much stuff. So we're going to make a change. And if, if the Lord finds me guilty for having taken too long, then he's going to have to deal with me. But we're going to make a change and we're going to have deacons to take care of all the carnal and secular aspects of our church so that I don't have to think about them, so that I can try to fulfill the job God has given me. And he has given me an assignment that I'm to give myself wholly to, and it's not the things that deacons do. But let's go back to the fact that Luke tells us in Acts 6.1, this occurred, and the reason for deacons being ordained was that the number of disciples had multiplied. And I want to show you how big that church was. Acts chapter 2, it tells us in verse 41 in the day of Pentecost, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. If we go to Acts chapter 1, we could say that the church in Jerusalem up to the day of Pentecost had a membership of 120. On the evening of the day of Pentecost, it had a membership of 3,120. Oh, but it's just getting started. Because look at verse 47. Praising God. This is a description of this wonderful church full of the Holy Ghost. When you read verses 41 through 47, it's what we want to aim after with all our might. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So the Lord was adding to this church on a frequent and regular basis. Daily, such as should be saved. Look at chapter 4. We don't know for sure if this was the next day or the next week. But notice what happens. Pentecost was just a warm-up. Acts chapter 4. The apostles are speaking to the people in verse 1. They're grieved that they're preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So they put some of them in prison. Verse 4, how be it? Many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. The number of the men was about 5,000. Ordinarily, we say that most men have a wife. And most men with a wife have two children. We're very conservative. And if that were the case, then 20,000 people believed here in Acts chapter 4. We don't know the exact number. We're just going off the 5,000 men. When we read about the Lord feeding 5,000 men and 4,000 men, besides women and children, we understand that it was one very large crowd. Uh, Look at chapter 5 and verse 14. Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. Acts 5.14. So you take 120, add 3,000, add 5,000, add some women, add adding to the church daily such as should be saved, adding multitudes added to the church here in 5.14, both of men and women, we have a very large church. 10, 20, 40, 60, 80,000 members. So that we come to Acts 6.1 and it tells us when the number of the disciples was multiplied. The church is huge. There arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews 
because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. We have one specific widow in our 85 members. We have other sort of widows and another widow that's not a member. What do you want to say that the the number of widows are per hundred in a church? One, two, three. If you take this particular time and all the wars that were fought with an occupying army in your country, how many widows were there? Let's just say there were only two per hundred. Let's say the church was only 25,000. That means there were 500 widows that were taken care of every single day. The money had to be gathered, accounted for, distributed, assignments made. These women didn't live in a dormitory. They were scattered throughout the city of Jerusalem, and they had to be taken care of because their sustenance was provided every day. Because these believers understood about sharing their wealth and their assets in true religion by visiting widows in their affliction. It's wonderful to watch this church in action. But a problem develops. There were two kinds of Jews. There were Greek, Greekicized, Grecian Jews, and there were Hebrew Jews. The Greek Jews were those that had moved away from Israel. These are not Gentiles. These are Grecians. They're Jews that are, we're not preaching to Gentiles yet in Acts chapter 6. We don't have a church full of Gentiles yet in Acts chapter 6. These Grecians were those Jews that had moved away from Israel under the king of Assyria, under Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, under the Greek and Roman dispersions of the Jews. So that they lived in other countries and they had come back to worship in Jerusalem and were converted. Are we told that in Acts chapter 2? There were devout Jews out of every nation under heaven that had come back to Jerusalem. Those that had been dispersed were considered Grecians as opposed to the Hebrew Jews. So we had Grecian widows and Hebrew widows, and the Grecians didn't have as much support. They had left their assets at home to a great extent. They were not considered as loyal to the nation of Israel as those that were there in Jerusalem. And so there was a tension between them. And the Grecian widows were being neglected and overlooked to some small degree or some large degree. It was large enough that it came to the apostles' attention that they were settling squabbles because church members were complaining that their mother, their grandmother, or so-and-so was not being taken care of with all the wealth that was being taken in by the church at Jerusalem. Because when you read Acts chapter 4, it says, Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. The apostles had a nightmare going on. All this wealth being brought and put at their feet and they were to make distribution to all these widows. And there was a lot of them. And so this issue came up that the Grecian widows were not being taken care of as well as the Hebrew widows. And that's Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. They were neglected in the daily ministration. Verse 2, the twelve apostles called the multitude together, this huge church, and said, listen, we got to have a business meeting because we have a problem in this church. It is not reason. It does not make sense. 
It is not reasonable. It is not right that we should be wasting our time settling financial squabbles and food squabbles and serving tables by, by getting food to widows. That doesn't make sense. God chose us to be witnesses of his, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to preach the word. For us to be involved in this activity is taking us away from, from what God gave us to do for the benefit of all you. The twelve called the multitude together and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. When an apostle was having to take money and make bank deposits and account for it and distribute that money and assign men to take food to widows, he didn't have time to be in the word of God, either reading it or preaching it. We should not leave the word of God to serve tables. That does not mean the apostles were pouring tea. It just means the apostles were overseeing this enormous business. For those of you who've done a catering for 500 people, just imagine doing a catering for 500 people that might not be in the same place and doing it every day. Right. And having to account for the funds that were coming in and distributed as fairly as they could. So they said, this, is, this doesn't make sense. And when, a, when an apostle says this doesn't make sense, it's by inspiration. That's why it's in, you know, we don't get to talk that way about the Lord's things and say it doesn't make sense that we should be doing this when they knew that taking care of widows did make sense. Apostles just shouldn't be doing it. It's not reason. This isn't right. It isn't appropriate. It doesn't make sense that we should leave the word of God, which God has assigned to us, and serve tables. Wherefore, here's the conclusion by the inspiration of God. Brethren. Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Church, listen. God gave us apostles a job to do for your spiritual welfare and for the furtherance of the Word of God. In order to settle all this and make sure that the widows are being taken care of equally and properly, you pick out seven men. That should tell you right there whether a woman can be a deacon. Look ye out among you seven men. There is no such thing as a deaconess in a New Testament church with any official job. There are exceptional church members that are women who do exceptional service. And they're noted. And they are women of note in the scriptures. Romans 16 has between five and ten of them. But they weren't deaconesses. They weren't put in an official office with authority like these seven men. Look ye out. Among yourselves, the apostles told the church, you take the responsibility of picking seven men that all of you trust, because that is of great importance. Jesus Christ wants men over his churches in the way of bishops that he trusts. But a church wants deacons over them, and a church submits to a bishop as well. Don't get me wrong on that. But when it comes to a deacon... A church must trust the deacon because the deacon is taking your funds and dispersing them for the benefit of the church. Look ye out among you seven men, and he gives three qualifications of honest report. They have great reputations for integrity. They're full of the Holy Ghost, and they're full of wisdom. And the apostles said, if you pick them, we'll ordain them. We will appoint them to the office of being a deacon to serve the church in this capacity. And that's what we have in verse 3. 
And they do have, we can learn from this verse right here, that a deacon has a measure of authority. Because he has been given a charge from the church and the pastor of that church to take responsibility for the financial matters. He's, He's put in that office. We'll take the seven men and we'll appoint over this business. That way we 12 apostles can forget it. And you, 50,000 or 25,000 church members, can trust these seven men that they will take care of the widows equitably. Verse 4, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that's what an apostle and that's what a bishop is supposed to do with his time. Give himself continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We can look at other verses. I hope you know them. 1 Timothy 4.13 Paul told Timothy, give thyself to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. A church suffers, and it it doesn't realize the full profit of a bishop, or apostles in this case, if that bishop or pastor is taken away with the care of secular matters. And so deacons take care of those things, so the church runs smoothly, everyone's happy, The money's taken care of well, and a pastor's doing what he's supposed to do. In this case, the apostles, and they said exactly what they're going to do. We're going to give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Studying the Word of God and preaching the Word of God. Defending the Word of God. Finding men that could preach the Word of God and ordaining them. The full ministry of the Word, the apostles were going to do instead of the financial matter and practical logistics of serving widows daily. Verse 5, the church is excited. The saying pleased the whole multitude. It is so wonderful. What a statement. Do you know how many divisions there could have been in 25,000 members? Or 50,000 members? We don't want anyone else to do it. We want Peter. We No, there was nothing like that. The saying pleased the whole multitude because it was a church full of the Holy Ghost. We agree. It's not right. It's not reason that you 12 men who are the foundation of the New Testament church should be running around making sure widows are getting fed. We agree. The saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose. The Bible doesn't tell us how to choose. We're just going to choose as equitably and as fairly as we can. We'll get to that as we get closer to the practical ramifications of all this for our church. And they chose Stephen, and it lists the seven deacons. Verse 6, whom they set before the apostles. The 25,000 church members voted until they were all agreed of whatever, whatever means they used to find seven men that they all trusted. And they brought the seven men to the 12 apostles and said, these are the seven deacons, that w- these are the seven men that we'll trust with this business you can assign them the task and we will, we will accept their decisions about the disbursement of the funds and taking care of the widows. Whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. The apostles ordained them and put them in their office, appointing them as they had said they would back in verse 3. And so they assigned them in a public service that you seven have a responsibility to take care of this church in financial and logistical matters that would hinder us from giving ourselves continually to prayer and to the Word of God. And I like what it says in the first part of verse 7, and the Word of God increased. Amen. Amen. Is that there coincidentally? 
And the word of God increased because the apostles were freed up from something that was a burden on their time and was sucking energy out of their souls that they could give to, the, to prayer and to the word of God. The word of God increased. When we do it God's way, the word of God increases. And the Lord was here showing the church an additional step when a church reaches a sufficient size or sufficient obligations that there ought to be men taking those things away from the ministry of the word. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. The church got bigger. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. It was not unusual in these days for average church members to have the ability or the gift to do miracles, and Stephen was one of those. We don't have to worry about anything like that happening today because we're way past that apostolic period of Reformation where miracles were given to many that had the Holy Ghost. Let's come over now to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, we've already read verses 14 and 15 that tell us that Paul is putting in writing what Timothy ought to do to behave himself properly in a way that pleases God and is according to the pattern of heaven in a New Testament church. It's in writing. So wonderful. Those, those verses we've read, verses 14 and 15, are wonderful. And what he's going to do in this chapter, in the 13 verses that came before this, he gives the qualifications of a bishop who's a teaching leader of a New Testament church involved and concerned with the spiritual welfare of the church. And that's down through verse 7. And then verses 8 through 13 are the qualifications listed for those men who would be leaders and overseers of the financial, logistical, carnal, secular, building matters of a church. Let's read verses 8 through 13. Remembering that this writing is for the pattern that we're to follow in the New Testament, and it should be as exciting to our souls as the writing that Solomon got from his father David that God had given him for the building of the temple. Amen. Verse 8, likewise, he's given a list of qualifications for a bishop. Now he gives a list of qualifications for deacons. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul, for the hand of the Lord being upon you and giving us in writing what you want us to look for in selecting deacons. Very quickly right now, I'll, I just want you to look at that 13th verse. In case there might be any envy between deacons and bishops, 
or any feelings that the office of deacon was not very important. The apostle attaches that 13th verse by the inspiration of God to give some encouragement. That if a man uses the office of a deacon well, he obtains for himself a good degree. He adds a measure of honor to himself. He doesn't buy it. The word purchase doesn't have to mean that you transferred money for it. This is by his conduct in the office of a deacon. He obtains for himself a good degree. He adds honor to himself before the Lord's people. And he adds honor to himself before the Lord himself. Because he is serving the Lord's church. And so he purchases to himself a good degree by fulfilling the office of a deacon well. We know what it's like to have promotions in the secular world or titles in the secular world. But here's a servant of the church that gets a degree of honor and respect added to him because he is a deacon that does his job well and the whole church benefits by it. And it says further that a deacon that does his office well, and it is an office, it is an official office in a New Testament church, that he gets great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. A man that does the office of a deacon well increases in his confidence and boldness in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness. By being so involved in the church that he is a servant of the church and integrally involved in the things going on in the church, he adds to his boldness of seeking first the kingdom of God in his life and being a servant of Jesus Christ the King. The difference, the difference here, maybe to help you understand this last clause, is a man who isn't in the office of a deacon compared to a man who is in the office of a deacon. The man who isn't in the office isn't doing as much for the church. He doesn't have a role for the church, and he's not as involved in all that's going on in the church. The man who is, and who does it well, there's only, we're only talking about one kind of deacon. The man who does it really well, and who's really in there, defending the pastor from getting involved in things that he shouldn't be, and serving the church well, he increases in his boldness of living for Jesus Christ and serving Jesus Christ because he has an important role in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he grows in confidence and boldness in the faith, which is talking about the gospel of our Lord. Now look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and see a reference in between these two passages that helps a little bit tie them together. When we get to 1 Timothy 3.8, if you're, if you're reading 1 Timothy 3.8 and you get to the, 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 the word deacon... Where has this office been? What's a deacon? You know, this is where we make a connection by Acts 6 with 1 Timothy 3. Because we know about bishops, and then when we come to the word deacon, it hasn't been used before, except for Philippians 1.1. It hasn't been used before, and so we're reading about this office where teaching is not required, but being of impeccable integrity and ruling their own house is required, so it's someone in a position of authority overseeing some sort of activity, but it doesn't involve teaching. And based on that, we connect it with Acts chapter 6. Then we come to Philippians chapter 1, and verse 1, we read this salutation and introduction of this epistle. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, 
with the bishops and deacons. This church at Philippi had three different categories of persons there. Saints, bishops, and deacons. And in 1 Timothy 3, we're told about those last two offices. The bishop is a teacher, because it says apt to teach, which it doesn't say for the deacon. And the deacon is a servant that has responsibility for matters that don't involve teaching. But those are the two offices of the church in Philippians 1.1, which are the two offices Paul told Timothy on how to qualify men for them. So there we have... There's a couple other references that I'm going to show you later after we establish ourselves well from these three as we get into various lists of gifts in a New Testament church. For instance, in in the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, I'm just going to mention it now, as it works its way down from apostles to prophets to teachers to workers of miracles, it works down to helps and governments. And then it gets to that least of all gifts in every context, Speaking in tongues, which tells you a whole lot about the charismatic movement of our day. But it's got helps and governments because there it's talking about the gifts and the offices and the work of a deacon who's a helper and a governor. A governor over this business is what the apostles said they would do for the deacons. Is to appoint them over that business because the church selected the seven and the church was going to submit to those seven as they made decisions on the distribution of money for the care of widows. So as we ask a few questions, when were deacons instituted? Our answer to that question is, they were instituted when the church at Jerusalem became so large that there was difficulties managing it financially and logistically, and the apostles were wasting their time serving tables, so they ordained seven deacons. And we've been through that already of how many deacon, how many widows they could easily have had and the amount of work that would have been involved. We then ask a question, why were the deacons instituted? And we should have all, we should already know the answer to that question. Why were deacons instituted? Because there were two, two classes of members in that church at Jerusalem, the Grecians and the Hebrews, and the Grecian widows were being neglected. And so someone had to step in and make sure that all widows were being treated fairly and We read about that in Acts 6. For those of you that want to go further and learn about those Grecians, read epistles like 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and James, where it says, To the twelve tribes scattered abroad. There were Jews scattered everywhere, and they were considered Grecian Jews because they spoke the Greek language, because if they didn't speak the Greek language, they weren't going to be able to function in the societies that they were part of. And they had come back to Jerusalem to worship on the day of Pentecost, And many were converted. The 3,000 came out of a group of visitors that had come to Jerusalem. Those are the Grecians. The Bible speaks about them. Now, we had a proselyte in there, didn't we? We had a proselyte that had been converted from pagan religion to the Jews' religion, and then was converted further to Christianity, and his name was Nicholas, the seventh of the deacons listed there in Acts chapter 6. Why were deacons instituted? For the wise division of labor. The division of labor did not originate with the Industrial Revolution and Adam Smith writing a book on a strict inquiry into the causes and nature of the wealth of nations in 1776. While that is an important book in the history of Western civilization, God had already ordained a division of labor. If If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there are 12 tribes... 
I'm rounding off, as the Bible always does. Have you ever read about the 13th tribe? There were 14 sons of Jacob that had tribes that came out of them. But they're called the 12. Don't worry. You understand that, don't you? Joseph was pulled out so that he could get a double portion, so two were stuck in. Levi was pulled out because they were separate, because they were a tribe of servants of God. But the tribe of Levi, if it had 50,000 members in that tribe, there was a division of labor within the tribe. Only the sons of Aaron could be priests. 5%, 3% of the total. The rest of the tribe of Levi were called Levites. And the Levites did the labor around the tabernacle. And there was a lot of labor. There was a lot of animal flesh to be hauled away. There was a lot of cleaning to be done, wood to be cut, items to be carried. But the men that went to that altar and the men that went inside that tabernacle were not Levites. And there were a few events in the Old Testament where Levites wanted the honor of priests. But God hadn't given them the honor of priests and God had to judge them for it. And so there was a division of labor where God had his priests that had come out of the loins of Aaron. And they were the high priests and the priests that served with him actually going into the tabernacle around the showbread, around the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement every year and and at the altar. And the Levites did the work to help them so they could do that work undisturbed with worrying about the logistics of the tabernacle. And, And all the instructions are given for that. Whenever the tabernacle was moved, different segments of the tribe of Levi were told, you carry this part of it, and then you carry this part of it, because there was a division of labor. The chapters that you read last evening, I hope, Exodus chapter 17, showed us how important Moses was to Israel, because it was Moses' rod that he had cast down in front of Pharaoh and it became a serpent, and then there were a whole lot of other plagues. Then it was Moses' rod that split the... Red Sea, it was Moses' rod that got water out of a rock in the first half of that chapter. And then when Israel went to battle with the Amalekites, Joshua went down with the troops. Moses went up with his rod. And on a hill overlooking that battle, Moses held that rod up. How many of you have ever carried a flag in a parade? How many how many blocks did you make it That is hard work, especially if you hold it out here and you hold it up. But Moses was holding up that rod, and I hope you read this last night and got the lesson out of it. You know, he couldn't couldn't hold it up. Every time his arm would come down out of exhaustion, the Amalekites would start to win. When he'd get his arm back up, the Israelites would start to win. And the battle is seesawing back and forth. And so a couple of the priests come up and get on both sides of him and get that arm up in the air. And Joshua gave the Amalekites some trouble. And they won that battle. Because there were men upholding Moses. God had chosen Moses. And though Korah and others envied Moses, Korah and all of his friends were nothing in God's sight compared to Moses. And he swallowed them up and destroyed them and burned up a company of 250 that thought that they deserved the office of Moses because God made Moses great. And there were others that helped support Moses. That was chapter 17. In Exodus 18, you read when Jethro came to visit his son-in-law, bringing his daughter and his, bringing his wife, Jethro's daughter, Moses' wife, and Moses' two sons, that he saw how Moses was being worn out. 
And he said, this isn't right. right. It is not reason. And this was by inspiration of God or Moses wouldn't have done it. And he said, look you out some men to take all the small matters in their own communities so that you can just be left with the big ones that take your knowledge of God, the Urim and Thummim, and your ability to go to God to get answers. that they, if, Urim and Thummim. The high priest had little pockets on his outfit in which there were two little stones. And those that stone was a way to contact God and to get an answer to a specific question. Right. Moses and Aaron could deal with God that way. Moses could go up on Mount Sinai and meet him face to face. And so they picked men. And there were some wonderful qualifications for those men in Exodus 18, weren't there? Do you remember some of them? They feared God. They hated covetousness. You want a man in office, what is the New Testament going to say? He is not greedy of filthy lucre. He hates covetousness, especially when it's a man dealing with money. You do not ever put a man in office that has a hunger for money. You put a man in office that likes to disperse money. Right. Well, carefully. <laughs> Wisely. Covetousness is such a bane on men because they can be bought. And their votes can be bought and their judgment can be bought. And so even back there in Exodus, we have that warning of men hating covetousness and loving truth. Men of truth that feared God and hated covetousness were appointed by Moses to take care of the small matters so that Moses could deal with the big matters and Israel got along better. Right. Why were deacons instituted? For God's ordination of the division of labor. So that some are dealing in spiritual matters, some are dealing in secular or carnal matters in a church. And so that the saints all benefit by the men that God chose for those respective offices doing their jobs without distraction. Praise the Lord. We don't need Adam Smith writing a manual on church practice. We need Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3. We'll close with a couple of verses. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. And let's, point, let's show what Timothy, as a bishop, was to be doing with his time, which shows us the division of labor. 1 Timothy chapter 4. While you're on your way there, let me read to you from Malachi 2.7. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. God always had a division of labor. The priests were the ones that taught. Sometimes the Levites did. Sometimes there were scribes. But here in Malachi 2.7, God is pointing out why he's going to judge the priests so severely. Because they were supposed to be the ones that the people of Israel could go to to have the word of God taught to them accurately and fairly and consistently. But they were no longer doing that. So he said he was going to take the dung of their solemn feasts, and smear it in their faces. But the point I wanted from Malachi 2 is, it is the priest's mouth that should be conveying the word of God under the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it was the apostles first, and prophets, then teachers. And the teachers are the ones right here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, where it says, apt to teach. They're the teachers. The third gift in the New Testament church after apostles and prophets. 
in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, where they're listed in order. Here's what they're supposed to be doing. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The salvation of a church and the salvation of its pastor is to be given, giving himself wholly and continually and continuing in these things of reading, exhortation, and doctrine. If he is distracted so that he no longer is taking care of himself or of the doctrine, he loses his full gospel benefit and the church loses as well. It's a lose-lose situation when a pastor is taken away from what God called him to do. And this is such a crying shame today where many pastors who have very large staffs are administrators rather than students of the Word of God. But here's a verse to Timothy. This isn't written to everyone. This is written to Timothy. Other men who aren't put in Timothy's office, who did not have the hands of the presbytery laid upon them, who do not have a gift from Jesus Christ to do the work of a bishop, they're to go to work and do what they do well. And together, the church and bishops trade carnal things for spiritual things, and the church prospers. Second Timothy 2.15. Second Timothy 2.15. We know this verse so well, but instead of looking at it for the words rightly dividing the word of truth, we want to look at this verse for what it's describing about a man in this office. And he's telling Timothy to do this. Study. To show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy, to do your job well and be approved of God and not be ashamed in your doctrine, you are going to have to spend a lot of time rightly dividing the word of truth. You are a workman in the word of God. Make sure you're in that word, which is perfectly agreeable with what we read in chapter 4 just a moment ago. Then chapter 3. Verse 15, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, Paul told Timothy, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That's not every man. That's not every woman. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17 are not written to every church member. They're written for the purpose of the man of God. That's what Timothy was to be doing. He was the workman in God's word. He was to be studying to show himself approved. It's when the ministry will study the word of God and preach the word of God that we can be saved from the perilous times of the last days. When they depart from the word of God and become administrators, serving tables, then the church suffers. This is God's ordinance. The man of God here is, are his ministers. Not every man. Every man is a man of God in some respect, but not in this respect. These are pastoral epistles. And they're to be read and understood that way. 
Because it's Paul addressing himself to Timothy, a bishop, on how he was supposed to behave himself in the church of God. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. This is a ministerial charge and oath that Paul laid on Timothy to be a faithful bishop, preacher, teacher, pastor that God had called him to be and given him a gift to do it. But if he got distracted, he would lose, his hearers would lose. This is the answer to the question, why? were deacons ordained to protect men like Timothy so that they could do their jobs in the Word of God well and they in the church would profit. And it's called profit in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that thy profiting may appear unto all because they have time in the Word of God. That's why we have deacons. We have a pattern before us. It's a pattern we want to follow. We want to follow it as closely as possible. We'll take this up further when we come back for our second assembly.